Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I am proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team. And on School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one is The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, which is www.shutdownlearner.com. And that site is loaded with blogs and lots of other great tidbits for parents. And the books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles. You can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook under Shutdown Learner. And so the goal of this show, School Struggles, that we talk in kind of down-to-earth, plain language for parents to help them understand their child. So I'm excited about the guests we have tonight. So hello to Kelly Sandman Hurley. Hello. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. And her partner, Tracy Block-Zaretsky. Now, Kelly Sandman Hurley is the co-founder of the Dyslexia Training Institute, and she received her doctorate in literacy with a specialization in reading and dyslexia from San Diego State University and the University of San Diego. She is a certified special education advocate, assisting parents and children through IEP process and the 504 plan process. Kelly is trained in structured word inquiry, Orton-Gillingham, Linda Mood-Bell, Ravo, and Wilson Reading Programs. Kelly is the past president of the San Diego branch of the International Dyslexia Association, and she co-created and produced Dyslexia for a Day, a simulation of dyslexia. And she is a frequent speaker at conferences and is currently writing Dyslexia, Decoding the System. So welcome to you, Kelly. And we have Tracy Block-Zaretsky is a co-founder of the Dyslexia Training Institute. Institute. She is certified 
as a special education advocate assisting parents and children through the IEP process and 504 plan, and she has been a trainer for the past 15 years training teachers, adult literacy staff, and professional and volunteer tutors. She is the past president of the San Diego branch of the International Dyslexia Association, and she is also trained in a number of those programs, Structured Word Inquiry, the Orton-Gillingham Approach, Wilson Reading System, Linda Mood Bell, Read Naturally, and a variety of reading and writing assessment tests. Tracy has presented at numerous conferences on learning disabilities, phonics, reading, and writing instruction, as well as provided professional development for K-12 to teachers. And she is co-creating and producing Dyslexia for a Day, a simulation. No, she co-created and produced Dyslexia for a Day, a simulation of dyslexia, and is a frequent speaker at conferences. So welcome to you, Tracy. Well, thank you, and I'm glad we could be here today. Yeah, thrilled to have you guys. You guys, they obviously, they know their stuff. So the uh, topic today is, the, the title is called Dyslexia Intervention, um, What Every Parent Should Know. And, you know, in spite of all the efforts of various, you know, adv- advocacy groups and all these conferences, there's still tremendous confusion out there in the public's mind. I see it almost every day with parents who come in to consult with me about what is dyslexia, what are the appropriate interventions, what's the best next step. So that's what we're here to talk about. So which of you would like to kick off? The first question I have here to talk is, you know, when should a parent consider an intervention for dyslexia or suspected dyslexia? When should that take place? And who? just remind me who's speaking first. Oh, this is Kelly. I'll take the first Hi, one. Kelly. Okay. Hi. Um, when should a parent consider intervention? They should consider an intervention as soon as they realize that their child is struggling. And that can be as early as four years old. It could be as soon as they hit kindergarten. So as soon as a parent realizes that their child is having an unexpected academic difficulty, that's when they should intervene with some type of intervention. And it depends on what, you know, um, if they have a, an official diagnosis or if they are just experiencing initial failure at the beginning, at the end of preschool or the beginning of kindergarten. Okay, so let me just make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, Kelly. Okay. Um, you're saying if the child, if you're suspecting as a parent that there's going to be difficulty, we should take some action regardless of whether somebody has given this kind of, uh, you know, name of dys- or title of dyslexia to to the child. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Yes. What should what, what what are the things so, that they should be looking for at the beginning? So, like, what okay. would what would be the things that you're when you're saying a you know I, I find most moms really get it you know they they intuitive oh, yeah. and I say moms because the dads are dragged in typically, <laughs> um, but the the the, the, the moms typically are the ones who are saying, I know think that something's wrong. They usually kind of know the, the, those mm-hmm. things that that are off. But what are some of these things that they should be looking for early on? And, you know, I really like what you said about the moms. I always tell parents, and they trust your instincts. You know your child better than anybody else on this planet. And if you have other kids, you also have something to compare it to. If you don't have other kids, like I don't, um, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out what's, what's normal, quote-unquote, and what's not. Mm-hmm. But one thing um, they can look for is um, in, at the end of preschool, if they still don't know their letters, and it's still, you know, I have one, and there's one child that I I know who, he, um, he'll still call letters numbers. So we'll show him a C and he'll say three. Or, you know, they, he's having trouble writing his name or he's really just having trouble with the whole concept that 
you know, the letters on the page of the books that they love to listen to are right. words, how words are put together. So maybe it's a child who, um, you know, this is, this is a child with no, no other obvious issues. So everything seems perfectly normal, but the, um, the reading is unexpectedly challenging for them. So maybe they love to sit in your lap and listen to a story, but if you try to point out the words underneath that are coinciding with what you're saying, they kind of resist that. Or um, yeah. yeah. Can, I, can I add a couple things, Cal? Yes. Yeah. Um, because this comes up often. If they're that young, which you can can look for all those indicators, Dr. Kelly's talking about. But um, if they're reversing their letters or their numbers, know that that's developmentally normal. You need to be looking for these other things that Kelly's talking about in the younger age, because parents sometimes are like, "Oh my gosh!" But and so all those things Kelly was talking about be definitely looking for them and also um if there's a family history if there's um aunts uncles grandparents cousins um other siblings that have struggled with reading that it's very um it's a good it can be a help to know that that might be what's going on with your own child so so um yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a couple words I want to stress and emphasize that you guys have said. Uh, one is this word unexpected. And I yes. think that the idea of the unexpected, it's part of the definition that is that is yes. accepted out there for, for dyslexia, that it's unexpected in relation to other cognitive abilities. So, so that the idea that I take away from that is, you know, it's not this notion of his IQ is high or is, it, it could, it's just he's, in a sense, bright enough that he, mm -hmm. it's unexpected that you look at this child and he seems pretty smart and he should be able to be learning to read. Right. He has the capability to learn and he's right. learning everything else, but for some reason the language part is causing him an issue or her. Yeah, it's kind of it's unexpected, which I think is a great way. I just wanted to emphasize yeah. your use of it. I think it's an excellent way to remind parents of that. It kind of it's unexpected. The other part of this is I totally support the notion of you know, looking at the family a little bit that in my in what I have seen it almost like a law of the universe, at least my corner of the universe where you know, one or the other parent more so. I, I don't necessarily find the aunts, uncles, and cousins probably don't ask those questions as much. But, you know, usually one or the other parent, of course, we'll blame it on the dad, uh, is, um, you know, ha has this had this difficulty. And, and you could see the parents mm -hmm. sort of turning colors a little bit, going, oh, I was just like this as a child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when, I, when they came into my office, um, I used to say, does anybody in your family struggle? And now I'd say, okay, which one of you struggled? Right. <laughs> which one of you? you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. That's a, I think that's a great way to put it. Which one of you, yeah. you know, fess up, right? <laughs> that's good. Um, so so what, what are there things you want to build on to some of the things you've said already before I ask another question? Um, I just want to add that when you when any, when any parent brings this up to anybody, whether it be a teacher or another family member or you know, somebody they run into at the store, whoever it is, if somebody tells you that they'll just grow out of it, I just want people to be really wary of that piece of advice because if it is, in fact, dyslexia, they're never going to grow out of it. And, and it's not just a boy being a boy, and it's not, you know, just developmental, and it's not just read to him more. So just, you know, try not to let those outside voices let you wait. It's your instinct is telling you that there's something there. I 100% agree with that. And yes. but let's before, you know I know that the theme of today's talk is intervention, but let's let's still stay with 
a little bit of diagnosis right now for for a couple of minutes because I do think that there's a it's good and bad from my point of view that dyslexia is kind of the term dyslexia is now becoming so popular. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of downside. Um, you know, the downside is it's very hard to shake it out of people's head, this notion of the, of the upside down and backward and a lot of the mythologies that go with it. So I tend to use the term reading disability. Now, when you, when you uh, although I'm comfortable saying dyslexia, but what, there's no absolute test for this. Is that true? No, well, as you know, it needs to be a battery of tests. A battery uh, Along with observations and a collection of background information and, and all kinds of stuff. Right, so it's a battery of tests, and it's kind of weighing a lot of different information, right, that leads yes. you to this diagnosis. Yes. But but the idea is, back to the original thing that you said, was that parents shouldn't be too hung up about having the, the term dyslexia to take action. That's what you said at the beginning. Right, yes, and especially when they're little. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of them getting a diagnosis when they need services from the school. But if you're still at a place where you can intervene while they're still young, you may never need to get to that point. So right. perhaps you never need that. You know, you know, you might never need the actual diagnosis if you actually get the intervention. They're always, if it, if it is dyslexia, they'll still be there. They'll always have it. But right. you got to a place where they might not need school services. And that's where the diagnosis really comes in handy. And and this and, this, and dyslexia is not an either or or black and white. It's a gradient, you know, right from from mild, moderate to severe. Yes, yes. Which exactly. is important to keep for parents to keep in mind. So what? Yes. So what? What does it? What does the intervention include? Like what? You know, the question of the components of of good intervention. What's involved there? You want to take that one, Tracy? Sure. Well, it needs to teach the phonemic and phonological awareness in a very multi-sensory, structured, very explicit mean. They're learning all the the concepts and rules of why our language works the way it works in a very um, structured way with linguistics tied into it so that they understand why our words work the way they work. Because that English actually makes sense when you understand the language. It, so, so many people think English is crazy and there's no logic behind it. And there's, there is tons and tons of logic behind it. it you, it's just that our um, teachers aren't taught the way our language actually works, so they don't know how to turn around therefore and teach it to our kids that way. Is there a way to get you know phonemic awareness? I I try to say, you know to help people who are listening, you know to define basic terms. Can you give us a concrete example of what you mean by phonemic awareness and how that is taught in a very in kind of simple way? Sure. Well, phonemic awareness has nothing to do with letters. It's only to do with the sounds because a phoneme is the smallest um, sound in a word that um, can be matched to a grapheme, which is a, the representation of our our sounds in our language. And so it's seeing how well they can manipulate sounds in our language to be able to segment them and blend them and identify them. Um, and it's all done. When we do it, when we work with kids with phonemic awareness, we're actually using colored blocks for them to help identify the different sounds and compare and contrast sounds and make sure that they can actually hear and manipulate sounds. The phonological and um, phonology part of it is tying it actually into the letters and the word structure and how words work. So 
to give um, an example of that, in, um, so many people will say the word two, like the number two, T-W-O, is actually, a, you know, you have to just memorize it. It's a sight word. And that's actually not true. The reason the W is there is because it's an etymological lock, um, marker to tie it to words like twin, twice, 12, 20, between, twilight, all those other words that have to do with the number two. Wow. So there's a what? I never knew that. <laughs> or... And well, and that's just it. Is that once you teach them the logic behind the language, they understand the language so much better. And so, kids with kids and adults with dyslexia, their brain they have the ability to learn. They need the logic behind the language because the brain knows what to do with logic. It doesn't know what to do with that's a sight word. You'll just have to memorize it. Wow, twain and two and twin, and with a lot of them out there, huh? Yeah, twine, twist. Twine, wow. Yeah. We can go on. I'm, I'm getting a lesson in linguistics as we speak. I thought it was a sight word. I thought it was a sight word. What do I know? Wow. How do you use the colored blocks? Give us a concrete example of how that works. Well, that's a, you know, really be, um, beginning level skills is um, – you would give a student either comparison sounds, like um, show, they have to show you a different color block for each different sound they hear. So you can either do it with just gi um, giving them sequences of sounds and then moving into real and then nonsense words to have them manipulate blocks. Um, so if you gave them like, they would pull two different colors because it would be the phoneme with the graphene representation of T and the phoneme um, for the, rep the graphic representation would be V, but we're not using letters. We're just having them manipulate sound. Right. And then right. you move into words like cat, and they should pull down three different colors um, and identify the phoneme, so it would be cat. Or if you gave them mom, they would have the beginning and ending color would be the same, and the middle color would be different because it would be m ah m. But and you do it with really nonsense words because um, if they actually have some visual memory of some of those shorter um, real words, you want to make sure that they're really manipulating sounds and not words. I mean, so you know, you know we, I think it's called it's called block tracking, right? Block tracking or so right? So 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 with block tracking, and I mean, I think it's a very lively activity uh, when I've seen it and done it with kids where they you know tracking the sounds with blocks. Um, there's, I think there's a lot going on yeah. there that are good for the dyslexic style child. What what do you think is working? You know, like you know, it seems to me that it captures their attention. For example, that it's lively. It's not using worksheets. It's hands on. Can you comment on that? Oh yeah, it needs to be. It absolutely needs to be multisensory, meaning they're seeing it, they're hearing it, and they're touching and manipulating things. So even when we they're do, they're not smelling uh, it though. Into where, no. They're not smelling of the block. They we're not smelling the block. I, 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 I try to make jokes once in a while. They usually don't work, but I try to make them once in a while. So. Our kids might pick them up and smell them. They are quite creative. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> or they might say that that one should smell like an, an orange because it's orange or something crazy. But, right, right. Um, they... Um, but it's you know making sure they have something to actually manipulate along with. It shouldn't just be listen to me or look at this. It should be um, something they're manipulating as well. So when we move into, say we're working on a base like S-I-G-N, um, and we're adding on suffixes, prefixes and suffixes, they could have those on cards that they're actually manipulating because S-I-G-N, most people will say it's a sight word because it's the if you, by itself as a word it says sign, but as a base it's S-I-G-N, and you start adding suffixes like A-L, and all of a sudden you have signal, and you hear that G, that phony G in signal, but you don't hear it in sign. 
And so there, you have them, those prefixes and suffixes on index cards along with their base on index card, and they can um, manipulate them around. It's you know I think when it, when done well it's great stuff because it's it, it when people look at it they really don't even see it as a, a reading lesson I mean it's it, it you know there's almost no text around you know it's you're you're, you're stimulating that uh, sound system you're stimulating the language system it's very manipulative playing with sound and it's and it, when done well it's very lively so it keeps kids attention uh, in ways that typically they aren't attending to in the classroom. And, you know, and you keep saying when done well, and I think that's really important. The, the, the yeah, you can do it doing, badly, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you know, because a lot of times the intervention is done by somebody who's not trained, mm-hmm. and so it kind of, you know, that happens a lot in schools, and so that can go south. And then the other part is the explicitness of it. Like, why are you doing this? This in helping them understand the language. Oh, I'm and that yeah, reminds me to give you guys a plug, you know. Um, the, the, these guys are from the Dyslexia Training. They're the co-founders of the Dyslexia Training Institute. And if you want to see more of their stuff, go to www.dyslexiatraininginstitute.org. So if you'd like to get some training and you want to learn more about these things, that's a great place to go. Yeah. Can, can I just add something in, Richard? Is, is that... Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems that happens in our school systems is that um, our teachers really want to help our kids and they they um, really care about helping our kids. Unfortunately, they don't get the appropriate training in their credentialing programs about what dyslexia is or how to identify it and what to do about it. So that's where the, the downfall is, is that they, when we keep talking about they have to have good training, is that they didn't get it in their most right. in most schools that um, they didn't get it in their credentialing program, so that's the big big part of the problem. Right, so there's a real gap between the, this knowledge base that's out there and the, and the person in front of the classroom or their ability to, to, to apply this these concepts with children. Exactly. Yes, yes. Um, what, what about the structured aspect you know frequently this comes up that these programs you know the, the I see them under the umbrella of Orton based programs Orton Gillingham based programs they're they're highly structured beside this block you know tracking and phonemic awareness what is what does that mean to versus say something like whole language type of instruction which I don't see as nearly as structured what what are the differences in that way um I would say that any any program that falls under the umbrella of an Orton-Gillingham-based approach, so Orton-Gillingham is an approach, and then there are packaged programs that you can buy, um, they all follow a progression. So when people think of them as being really structured, um, the way they're set up is that you have to teach syllable types, but you have to go in a certain order, and you're not really supposed to move on until they've mastered one, and then move on to the next, and move on to the next. And a lot of them are really highly scripted, and so... That's much different than, say, whole language, because whole language really encourages um, a lot of use of guessing and predicting and using pictures, where an Orton-Gillingham-based approach really um, requires the child to use the tools that they've been taught explicitly to decode a specific word before they can move on. And so I think that's where people are getting the, the really it's, it is the structure is actually part of the description of an Orton Gillingham program. So it is yeah, really structured, I mean, but yeah. Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. They do, and they and kids with dyslexia they they need that. They need not to jump around, and they need it to be um, logical. So to, 
for them to follow a logical sequence is going to help them understand the language as they go. I think it's enormously it, important. You know, it's so important for these kids to have this kind of sense of mastery that these yeah. programs provide where you're not moving on until you've, in effect, mastered this as you called it, syllable type. So in stage one of this, you're focusing in on consonant, vowel, consonant type word patterns so that it's always going to be this short sound that they can uh, hold on to and count on and, and feel it and start to get some confidence with, which they had never felt before. Yeah, the confidence yeah, is really and important. I, yes, and I think um, it's it's the structure and, the ex, and as Kelly said earlier, it's the explicitness. They actually learn the why they're doing it and what the the rules and the concepts behind it. So, the, you know, they know how to look at a word and break it down to decode it or listen to a word and encode it. So decoding is reading it and encoding it is spelling it. Yeah, the explicitness is also very important because it's not just kind of assimilated uh, through osmosis. It's here's, you know, the, the teacher is teaching the sounds explicitly and teaching how, okay, follow me, watch me, observe me, you know, that kind of thing. It's like a good sports lesson in that regard, you know, pull your racket back <laughs> this way, you know, that it's very explicit as, a, you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to other methodologies. Um, so, so, and I think those are really, really important components for these kids. Um, what was I going to ask about that? So the multisensory aspect is the, is the touching, the feeling, and, and the movement to it, right? Correct. What what training or knowledge do you think these so, – so, you know, does a person have to be certified to be doing these kind of methods, or what do, should parents be looking for when they're, when they're seeking this kind of instruction? Oh, that's a loaded I know, question. it's an open can of worms. It's a big can of worms, I know. <laughs> it, I know. It, 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 I, you know, yeah. one of the things that, I hesitated um, we asking hear, it. <laughs> well, we'll be, we'll be, we'll do our best. Right. Um, <laughs> one thing that we hear a lot, and because Tracy and I are advocates, so we attend a lot of IEP meetings, and we, um, we hear from parents on a daily basis about their struggle to get appropriate services at school. So the one thing that we hear a lot is that somebody will say, well, I've been trained, and then we ask, well, what was your training? And it was, um, you know, a three-hour workshop. Or, or, the, or it was even like a week-long workshop, but there was no practicum. So if, if you're looking for a real solid tutor, somebody has to have had to invest a lot of time in order to get to that point. So they should really be trained in at least, at least 45 hours of coursework and then at least a 45-hour practicum where somebody is coaching them. Because just going and hearing the information is not really enough. Someone really needs to observe you doing it to make sure that you're doing it correctly. And so somebody can say, I know how to do this, but, and then you, you know, like I said, you dig, you dig a little deeper, and they just, or maybe they even just watched a 10-hour thing online. And, you know, that's not certification. That's, you know, it's a... It's an it's yeah. a knowledge about Orton Gillingham or whatever approach it is that you're using and that it exists, but it's not trained. Right. So I just caution parents not to jump on board with somebody who may have just had cursory knowledge. Right, but trained, I believe, and I think you're saying this, that trained is, is different than certified. It's nice to be certified, but sometimes I've known some, I've known some excellent um, people who are doing great decoding emphasis work, um, 
you know, whether it's Wilson or Lindemood or whatever, but they don't, they haven't reached the level of certification yet. I would recommend them yes. to a parent in part because they're also being mentored and supervised, which is, yes. you know, I think parents could help part. separate that out a little bit. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, the certification is a little um, tricky in the dyslexia community because our organizations do offer certification, and then so it becomes kind of murky as to whether or not you actually have to be certified. And right. like you just said, you don't have to be certified. You, um, it's, It might be nice on, for a professional level if you do get a certification, but you can be an excellent tutor without the actual certification. But the important part that you said was that they were trained and mentored. That's what... Yeah, and some of, some of this is a personality. Yeah, some of this is a personality of the teacher. I've known some people yeah. who are certified in some programs who I don't think are great teachers necessarily. You know, <laughs> their 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 personality may be lacking in terms of the way they were reaching yeah. the child. And if you don't, if, you know, this is this isn't exciting work. I mean, this isn't great literature, obviously. So if you, if you don't present this in a lively way, and keep kids engaged, you know, with your yeah. personality, then the work may not. You know, it's not done well, as we said before. How yes. how long do the how how long do these you know does it does does it have to be one on one? People get hung up about that a lot too. It has to be one on one. What's your what's your opinion on that? Um, Another can of worms. In a school, uh, go ahead. In a school setting, it, you're pro- it's very difficult to get one on one. Yeah. You're probably it's most likely going to be a small group. But what they need to do is make sure that that small group is defined in the IEP that it's. You know, depending upon the severity of your child's dyslexia, maybe only uh, a small group of two or three, um, or you know, but you can get that specifically defined in your IEP, and it has to be of peers who have the same level of difficulty. Right, well matched. I, I literally was I was in an IEP meeting when they were claiming the student was in a small group and it was 21 kids. That's not a small group. That's right. a classroom. Yeah, I, that's just yeah. crazy, and um, you know. It, it's ideally definitely the more severe the dyslexia, the more strongly I feel that it has to be one on one. But it has to be, you know, with like peers and it's, you know, the implementation. And the thing with the, the small groups is you can only move as quickly as the slowest, the person taking the longest to grab, learn the concept. Yeah, they're great points. I want to emphasize, I think, I think what you just said is, is right on the money. You know, small group means two, three, four, that's it. You know, that's, yeah. beyond that, it's really not small group. Um, I think that the more severe the dyslexic, I call them my kids that are in the dyslexic hall of fame, the ones that I've <laughs> tested that are like, wow, that kid is, yeah. that's real dyslexia. And those kids can't really do well in a, in a small group, and they need much more intensive, probably daily, wouldn't you agree, intensive one-on-one? Oh, oh yeah. I feel you would be daily. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, ideally it would be daily. I think those kids needed very, very intensively. Um, we're, we're getting closer to time limit here. Um, is there, you know, the, I think you had one of your questions down. Is it is there ever is a child ever too young or too old? Which I think is a great question to to give these kind of methods to to use these kind of methods. No, you know, I love this question. The reason um, we, we like this question is because Trace and I both worked in adult literacy before we moved to working mostly with children. So we worked for an adult literacy program at a public library here in San Diego. And so we worked with adults all the way up to 80. And so absolutely not. It's never too late. Of course, it takes a little bit longer because your brain is less plastic as you get older. 
So it, you know, but no, and it's never too young. We've had as young as four in our in our center here. So no, never too young, never too old. Of course, you know, the intervention changes a little bit as you get older. Um, but right, no, never ever too late. And we're just tired of seeing these adults come into our office at the library and just cry. Yeah. And so, um, and then we, but then watch their head lift as they get the intervention. So. I think it's a totally great intervention for older people. When I say older, you know, from adults mid-20s on up to 80 or whatever, um, I think it's a great intervention. And I think you're right. When they when they start to sort of get it from the structured intervention, it's like a, that light bulb going off. And it, yeah. it's like they're getting something that they've never had in their whole, in their entire life, where lives yeah. where it's like, wow, this is opening up for me something that, you know. This can be very freeing for them. It can be very freeing, and it's often the first time they really truly believe they're not stupid. Right. Because they, yeah. need, no matter how smart they are in so many other aspects of their life, because literacy is such a central focus in our culture, they do, they truly feel, I can't tell you how many adults that I worked with that were like, I really thought I was stupid. And I'm like, right. but you're so successful yeah. here and here and here. And they're like, yeah, but I couldn't read, so I must be. St- I always thought I was stupid. And it's just amazing to see the transformation and then when they... They they can, they they see they actually can learn. They just were never taught the right way. Well, you're right, and that's that's like that. Um, there's an emotional component to this that is we call it at our center learning therapy. I I try to stay away from the term tutoring because I don't think it describes it well. And I think the learning right. therapy is there's something that I can't put my finger on. It's an intangible between the learning therapist and the child. Or even even when I test, I'm sure Kelly, you feel this too. Like the kid walks out of your office when you say, "Wow, you you know." you did a great job in this block design or whatever, you know, and the kid walks out feeling better about him or herself. Yes. And I think the same thing happens with learning therapy. That's when it's done well, there's an energy between the teacher and the child that gives the child a charging of, of their emotional battery, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, I've I've actually been with a student before, and he, he would do something, and I would just start crying because he did it so well. <laughs> Yeah. And he feels so excited. <laughs> and one other thing I've done is I've recorded them at the beginning and then the middle and the end, you know, kind of along the way, and I'll play it for them at the beginning, and then I'll play it for them that day, and they're like, oh, my God. So just they can hear their own progress, and that's really Yeah, that's no, really nice great stuff. I, and I've known professionals. I, I had a, years ago a professional who was trying to get to med school who was, you know, not doing as well with his medical boards. And he it turned out I identified him as having dyslexia. And he started with Wilson at 1.3 and worked his way up. And he's a specialist today, you know. So it's, it's in that regard, it's never too late, you know. No, never. We actually we actually have a, a young lady in our um, at one of our centers right now. It's in that same boat. She is amazingly smart, but she was having a hard time passing her MCAT because she um, had had undiagnosed dyslexia and got diagnosed, and it's like, oh, yeah. now she knows why, and working yeah. on getting the appropriate accommodations, and accommodations are, are so vital for our kids and, and adults that have dyslexia because they have the intellectual capacity to perform grade-level work, to, you know, um, understand grade-level work. They just need the appropriate accommodations in place so that they have access I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be, in a sense, my last part, you know, last question <laughs> about the accommodations, you know. So, no, so what what would – the question as you had it was, you know, are you know, there are times when accommodations are more appropriate than interventions, and then what would those top accommodations be from your perspective? 
accommodation should always be considered along with their remediation. It shouldn't be in place of remediation. They should always, no matter how young they are or how old they are, have their accommodations in place because, they, ha as I said, they have the intellectual capacity to do grade-level content. They need the access to be able to read it and to be able to produce it. And so that's what accommodations are for. When you, when you get into the high, uh, middle school and high school, because they don't tend to do remediation very well at that point, we really focus on the accommodations being the primary thing that's going to be happening at the school. And more often than not, they're getting their remediation outside of school at that level. But it doesn't mean that the school's not responsible for it. It's just the reality is that's often what happens. But making sure those accommodations are in place. So, and if they have an identified disability, they can access um, things like Learning Ally or Bookshare, which have huge collections of books and other print material in audio format that and sometimes it's textbooks and a lot of the required readings for school, um, having the speech-to-text software, having you know all the appropriate accommodations. And it doesn't have to all be computer-based. There are other accommodations that can be appropriate for the student. And making sure that they have um, the right combination of accommodations, because a lot of times they'll get extra time. But a kid can sit in front of a book or a computer for hours and hours. If they can't read it, they can't read it. The extra time is not going to do anything. Yeah, so, right. Um, I, I, right. I, I think they want, that's, that's one of those ones, the go-to extra time accommodations. Well, yep. time is fine if you, can, if you can reasonably decode the words, but you know, if you're decoding yes. them slowly. But if you, if you can't, then time's not going to help you. No. Would and, you and would you recommend that teachers cue kids into those words? Would you recommend that teachers Would you recommend that teachers cue kids in and and preview those difficult words with them before they read? Absolutely, if they're going to be able to then read it independently, if they have some right. you know support to reading it. But if they you know more, more likely than not, if the teachers having to do that with a lot of words, then they're not going to be able to read it independently. So extra time is not going to do anything. They also need the text to speech reader. Right. Last question. How length of time on these? I have, from my end, I wish I could say to parents because I would be a hero, uh, you know, that I can cure your, I can name this tune and cure this kid in 15, 20 sessions. How long do these interventions last? We never, ever, ever answer that question because <laughs> don't we don't you. know. We, you yeah. know we, we, I wanted your parents to, to remember that if anybody ever tells them, they can do anything, that somebody's like, I can do this in 10 hours, or I can do this in 12 yeah. hours, or I can do this in 20 hours, that you should really be careful um, yep. because it depends on the severity, it depends on the intervention, it depends on the amount of vacations you take, it depends on the consistency, the training of the person, the students, and maybe, you know, there are students who just are not cooperating, and, yep. you know, and it just depends yep. on so many things. So, so many variables, just, yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that, you know, nobody should ever put a number on it. Yeah, and 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 real dyslexia and real learning disabilities, frankly, are hard work. I mean, they're they are they are in the hard wiring, so to speak, and they're just tough yeah. to overcome. And they take a lot of patience and a lot of good work over time. I want to thank you guys. You've been very. What's that? Right, right. 
I want to thank you guys. I, it's been very informative. I've enjoyed talking with you. And um, one more time, I've been talking with Kelly Sandman Hurley. Um, Dr. Sandman Hurley is the co-founder of the Dyslexia Training Institute with her partner, Tracy block Zaretsky. They do a lot of great work. They can be found at www.dyslexiatraininginstitute.org. And my name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I can be found at the shutdownlearner.com. And you can also listen to previous, I have a lot of interviews now, they're growing on school struggles on thecoffeeclutch.com. A lot of great guests, we've talked about ADHD and dyslexia, so it's www.thecoffeeclutch, that's with a K at the end, clutch, K-L-A-T-C-H.com. So thank you guys, I will stay in touch, okay? Thank you for thank having you us, for we your appreciate time. it. Pleasure, take care, be well, you enjoy too. sunny uh, Southern California. <laughs> we want rain. I'll go back to New Jersey. Uh, okay. All right. Take care, guys. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.